Isaiah chapter 34, reading from verse 1. Come near, ye nations, to hear, and hearken, ye people. Let the earth hear, and all that is therein, the world, and all things that come forth of it. For the indignation of the Lord is upon all nations, and his fury upon all their armies. He hath utterly destroyed them, he hath delivered them to the slaughter. Their slain also shall be cast out, and their stink shall come up out of their carcasses, and the mountains shall be melted with their blood. And all the host of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heavens shall be rolled together as a scroll, and all their host shall fall down, as the leaf falleth off from the vine, and as a falling fig from the fig tree. For my sword shall be bathed in heaven. Behold, it shall come down upon Edomia, and upon the people of my curse to judgment. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is made fat with fatness, and with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord hath a sacrifice in Bozrah, and a great slaughter in the land of Edomia. And the unicorns shall come down with them, and the bullocks with the bulls, and their land shall be soaked with blood, and their dust made fat with fatness. For it is the day of the Lord's vengeance, and the year of recompenses for the controversy of Zion. And the streams thereof shall be turned into pitch, and the dust thereof into brimstone, and the land thereof shall become burning pitch. It shall not be quenched night nor day, the smoke thereof shall go up for ever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste, none shall pass through it for ever and ever. But the cormorant and the bittern shall possess it, the owl also and the raven shall dwell in it, and he shall stretch out upon it the line of, com of confusion and the stones of emptiness. They shall call the nobles thereof to the kingdom, but none shall be there, and all her princes shall be nothing. And thorns shall come up in her palaces, nettles and brambles in the fortresses thereof, and it shall be an habitation of dragons and a court of for owls. The wild beasts of the desert shall also meet with the wild beasts of the island, and the satyr shall cry to his fellow, the screech owl also shall rest there, and find for herself a place of rest. There, sh there shall the great owl make her nest, and lay, and hatch, and gather under her shadow. There shall the vultures also be gathered, every one with her mate. Seek ye out the book of the Lord, and read. No one of these shall fail, none shall want her mate. For my mouth it hath commanded, and his spirit it hath gathered them. And he shall cast the lot for them, and his hand hath divided it unto them by line. They shall possess it for ever. From generation to generation shall they dwell therein. Amen. May the Lord bless. 
this reading to us also. From the opening chapters of the Bible and the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, it has been clearly revealed how God hates sin and God will judge sin. Adam broke trust with God. Adam chose Eve above God. Adam sinned against his maker. In rejecting God, he shattered the peace and perfection God had created on earth and thereby set all of Adam's posterity in rebellion against God. We did not have to wait long to see the consequences of that fall. The firstborn man slew his young brother in jealousy, pride and rage. And sin took hold in the world. It exploded with viciousness, filling the earth as Satan led men and women captive according to his will. Then within a mere ten generations, we find these words. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and creeping thing, and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now I've mentioned these verses because I want to make the following points to you by way of introduction. God detests sin. It grieves God at his heart. Now that is a form of speaking, a way of speaking that enables us to understand the intensity of God's hatred against sin. But these verses also remind us that God is determined to destroy man and this cursed world because of sin. We're told in these early chapters of Genesis, that God once did indeed destroy mankind by means of a worldwide flood. A fact surely intended to emphasise 
how rigorous divine justice is. The Lord looked upon the face of this earth. He saw the wickedness of man's deeds and how it filled the earth. And God was determined to destroy man and the earth that was cursed. And we also learn that at the very moment when God passed sentence on this rebellious people, that one sinner found grace in the sight of God. Now fast forward to Isaiah. It was about 1600 years perhaps from uh, the fall to the flood and maybe another 1800 years from the flood to the time of Isaiah. But what we discover is simply this, that history is repeating itself. Again, just as the Lord declared at the time of the flood, the nations of the world are in full rebellion against God. Again, the wickedness of man was great in the earth and every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And again, in this chapter, we find God promising destruction on mankind and the nations of the world. Verse 1 tells us, Come near ye nations to hear, and hearken ye people. Let the earth hear, and all that is therein, the world and all things that come forth of it. For the indignation of the Lord is upon all nations, and his fury upon all their armies. He hath utterly destroyed them. He hath delivered them to the slaughter. I want us to realise that this is God's attitude and approach toward the wickedness of this world. And the fact that God is patient, the fact that God is long-suffering, the fact that God does not bring judgment immediately upon this earth, the very fact that we are here at all today is not because the world has got any better. The world was the same in Isaiah's day as it was in the day of the flood and it is the same today as it was in the day of Isaiah. The world is still full of wickedness and there is evil imaginations in the heart of man and God's indignation is still poised to take its toll upon this earth. These chapters that we read here in Isaiah, is full of, of the talk of judgment, of the talk of slaughter, of the talk of the sword of the Lord. And having destroyed the world once before with water, God now promises destruction by bloody slaughter, by fire and by dissolution. The people of this world mocked God in Noah's day when he sent a preacher of righteousness warning them about the judgment to come. They mocked God in Isaiah's day and things have not changed much 
Because still today, men laugh at the prospect of judgment. But it is coming and it is coming soon. Either individually or for this world in its entirety. This judgment that Isaiah speaks of goes by the name the sword of the Lord. That's what Isaiah, that's what the Lord is calling judgment. The sword of the Lord. It bears this title first because it originates with the Lord. This is the sword of the Lord. Second, it bears the title because it is executed by the Lord. Even if it is carried out by another means. Sometimes God uses angels to wield the sword of the Lord. Sometimes he uses men to wield the sword of the Lord. For example, uh, we, 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 we have heard and we will, we will learn more of a man called Cyrus. Cyrus brought judgment on Babylon by which the children of Israel were able to return from their captivity. But Cyrus was simply a tool in God's hand to dispense judgment and do his will. Cyrus himself had no interest in the Lord's people per se. He had no interest in the great event that he was appointed to accomplish. He personally did not know the Lord. But Cyrus was the sword of the Lord for the accomplishment of his purpose. And the third reason it's called the sword of the Lord is because judgment is a violent, tormenting experience. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean this. Every sinner who dies outside of Christ dies violently. Even if they die peacefully in their sleep. Because death is an enemy. And hell is immediate conscious torment. I often think what horror must flood the souls of men and women in the moment of death. What horror must flood the souls of men and women in the moment of death? That's the sword of the Lord. The rich man died in all his luxury, but he opened up his eyes in hell, being in torments, we are told. And in Psalm, uh, Psalm 9, verse 17, David says, the wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. This is God's righteous act. This is the sword of the Lord and there is no peaceful death for the unforgiven. I want to leave three points, quick points, uh, with you concerning this passage today. Um, the first point 
is the longest. So don't worry when you hear me saying point two and think to yourself, oh, he's going to go way over his, his time. I'm not going to do that. But here's the first point that I want to make. Holiness requires judgment. Justice cries out for retribution. And God's holy law marks and records iniquity. It measures and itemizes every transgression and patiently waits for satisfaction. It won't be denied. And this is true for all. Ezekiel, the prophet, writes, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. That just means that every man and every woman is going to be answerable before God for the sin that they have committed. The Apostle Paul puts it somewhat more straightforward when he says, the wages of sin is death. And this is true of final judgment, but it also has an impact and a significance in temporal judgment as well. Judgments that happen in this world happen in people's experiences. Let us not imagine just because the wicked appear to prosper, people who have no concern for God, people who laugh and mock and reject the things of God, people who, who uh, lust after the values of the world and after the satisfaction of the flesh and pursue after their own ends and maintain their own self-righteousnesses and their good works and claim that they're as good as the next person. Let's not imagine that these wicked who appear to prosper will not have to give recompense for the evil that they commit even in this world. We may not see a direct one-for-one -one correlation between a wicked act and its judgment. But that does not mean that God is mocked or that justice is denied. On the contrary, Paul writes in Galatians chapter 6, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. There is a judgment happening constantly in the lives and the experience of men and women who turn their backs on God. Let us remember the context of this chapter and, and, and I just draw this to your mind again. Remember that Isaiah is speaking to God's elect remnant amongst the Jews in order to comfort them in a world that is about to collapse in apparent chaos. The people of Judah 
as the people of Israel before them, would soon be overwhelmed by the nations that were greater than they were. They would be brought into captivity. They would be deported to a faraway land. In such ways, nations disappear. And there was that concern amongst the remnant people of God that they too were about to disappear. And then what would happen, what would transpire concerning the promises of God? Isaiah's prophecy is to encourage and reassure that people that God is still upon his throne. Isaiah's message is, while turmoil and disorder seem to reign, God is still in charge. He is still marking time. And soon the day of the Lord's vengeance and the year of recompenses for the controversy of Zion will become apparent. This was true then and it is still true today. The king of Assyria, Sennacherib, lifted his hand against the Lord's people and in time he paid with his life. The king of Babylon lifted his hand against Jerusalem and in time he too paid with his life. No sin goes unnoticed. No act against the Lord's church goes unpunished. And concerning Zion, the church, the Lord says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. We can read uh, about that more fully in Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 35. And I'm going to read the whole verse because I think if we think about the words, it's very significant what is said there even back in the book of Deuteronomy. Here's what it says. Paul, Paul when he's, he's, he's speaking and saying vengeance is mine, I will repay, is paraphrasing this verse from Deuteronomy 32. To me, says the Lord, to me belongeth vengeance and recompense. Their foot shall slide in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things that shall come upon them make haste. This is payback. This is retribution. And it hasn't changed. The Lord says, touch not mine anointed. Touch not my people. Touch not my church. Touch not my little ones. A husband is jealous for his wife. A father is jealous for his child. And the Lord Jesus Christ is jealous for the safety, protection and well-being of his church. Woe betides the man or the woman or the nation that lays a hand on the elect people of God. Isaiah speaks about indignation. He uses words like fury and slaughter and destruction. He speaks about wrath flowing from God's holiness and revealing thereby his response to sin. The language is frightening. Burning pitch, fiery brimstone. The descriptions here, as we have seen, are 
re-employed as descriptions of hell in the Gospels by the Lord and in the book of Revelation by the Apostle John. The Lord speaks of a great division. He says, depart from me, ye cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Jude speaks of suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. John writes, the fearful and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Well might the writer to the Hebrews declare, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Here's the second point that I want to touch upon. One might wonder in all of this judgment and punishment for sin, where is love and mercy and forgiveness to be found? How can God, who, as we have seen, showed grace to Noah, uphold justice, as we have described in our first point, he must, and yet show mercy? How can he be both just and yet justify sinners, make sinners righteous? The answer is by finding a substitute to suffer in the place of those whom he has chosen to salvation and everlasting life. In Job, the book of Job chapter 33 and verse 24, we have a description of a sick man. A man who is sick unto death, but one who is Redeemed and delivered by the grace of God. Here's, here's what we read in that verse. Then he is gracious unto him and saith, Deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. That's the gospel right there in the book of Job, perhaps one of the earliest books of the Bible written, there is the gospel right before our eyes. The reason otherwise condemned sinners find grace in God's sight is because a ransom has been found to pay their debt to sin, to bear their guilt, and to deliver them from death. The words in Job are spoken to the law and to justice. We've already said that the, the, the law demands, the holiness of God demands, justice demands retribution. But here... The word goes forth from the Lord, let the redeemed of the Lord go free. Let them not be condemned to the bottomless pit 
of everlasting ruin and destruction. Why? I have found a ransom. And that ransom is no other than Christ, the Son of God, whom Jehovah in his infinite wisdom found and settled upon to be the ransomer and the redeemer of his people. And Christ agreed to fulfil that role and in the fullness of time came to give his life a ransom for many. This ransom is for all the elect of God, all who find grace in the sight of God. And it releases them from sin and Satan and the law and hell and death and judgment. And I want you to note this. It was God who found the ransom. People say, oh, I found God or I've, 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 I've found forgiveness or I've, I've found everlasting life. Well, OK, let's give them the benefit of the doubt and hear what they have to say. But it's God who found the ransom. It is God who settled upon Jesus Christ. It is God who formed this plan of salvation. And it was the persons of the Godhead who covenanted together to bring redemption to his people. The covenant of grace and peace, the plan of propitiation, peace and reconciliation by Christ is the effect of infinite wisdom. It's a scheme drawn up in the eternal mind formed in and upon Christ from everlasting. We spoke about what is the providence of God. This is the essence of God's providential care for the people of his choice. This is God's blessing upon the people that he loves. And here's my third point, and with this we'll wrap it up. The ransom price is the blood of Christ. So before we close, I just want to return briefly to the sword of the Lord and think about what that means and what it said to us in our first point. I want us to do so just so that we realise the nature and the extent of our ransom by Christ, what it means and what it cost. We're told in Revelation chapter 5 verse 9, Thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. The ransom price was Christ's innocent blood. It is the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanseth us from all sin. Because the sword of the Lord was unsheathed in heaven. That's what the, 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 the reference to bathed in heaven means. The sword of the Lord was unsheathed in heaven. And it was plunged into the soul of Christ as he hung upon the cross. Zechariah writes, Awake, O sword, 
against my shepherd and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. This sword of the Lord, this judgment of God, it was roused and awakened against God's own fellow, the shepherd of the sheep, and the sword was used against our Saviour. The justice of God never overlooks sin. The justice of God, the law of God, counts the cost, exacts the price, and only when it is fully satisfied withdraws and rests completed. On the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ paid the whole debt of every elect child of God. Not one sin remains outstanding or unpaid. Not one shadow of guilt darkens our view in God's sight. Not a single accusation can legitimately be levied against us. Our Lord Jesus Christ has borne our sin and carried our sorrow. We are free in him from guilt, sin, death, hell and Satan's rule. For us, for us who believe, for us who are safe, for us who are saved and cleansed in the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lord's sword is returned to its sheath. The ransom is paid and we have peace with God. And if you believe that, you have nothing to fear in life, nothing to fear in death and nothing to fear in judgment. There is no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. I mentioned yesterday in the little introduction that I sent out that the closing reference to the book of the Lord in this chapter seems to direct the remnant people, the Lord's elect, you and me. Those who believe, it seems to direct us to be always watching for when these predictions will be verified Comparing, as it were, events in time with the prophecies of old to see how everything will be exactly accomplished as promised by God. This exercise of taking the prophecies and finding their fulfilment was designed to comfort God's Old Testament people as they watched and waited for the coming Messiah. And it should comfort us still. No matter what chaos seems to reign in this world, or what chaos seems to reign in our own lives, God is still on his throne. Judgment on the wicked is certain, and salvation for the elect is assured. John tells us in Revelation, the words of God shall be fulfilled. And we trust and believe it is so. Amen. May the Lord bless these thoughts to us as well.